The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Death is not a polite topic for conversation in most social settings. Edgar Allan Poe, the author and poet and short story writer, has a thriller, a terrifying story called The Mask of the Red Death, which actually lampoons people's aversion and fear of death. In the story, death comes in costume to a great masquerade party where people think that they are safe from the plague and the death that is wreaking the land outside the castle walls. To the people's great dismay, there is no escape. Edgar Allan Poe captures in this gripping tale the, the fear of natural man who is seeking to escape the curse of death. Well, in this vision of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 37, in the valley of the dry bones, is equally grim. And yet there's a great contrast from Poe's analysis of death. We find in Scripture not despair, but genuine hope that comes through the life-giving Spirit of God. For those of us on pilgrimage... Through the valley of shadows, let us find encouragement from the Word of God. A reminder that our Redeemer lives and will carry us safely through. Let us read Ezekiel 37, verse 1 to 14. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophecy to these bones, and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. And the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophecy to the breath. Prophecy, son of man, say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. 
So I prophesied as he commanded me. And breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet. A vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says, O my people. I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. And I have done it, declares the Lord. This is the word of our God. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Hearing the prayer request this night about some family members struggling with cancer and pneumonia leads well into my opening illustration. About a year and a half ago, a favorite aunt of mine died of cancer. Uh, lung cancer and complications following thereafter. And I remember being at this funeral, and the evening before there was an open casket viewing, and scores of people were in attendance, and I couldn't help but observe how certain people were quite comfortable walking up to the open casket and paying their respects. But then there was other people who wouldn't dare go near it, uncomfortable to go near a dead body, no matter how well she looked, having been preserved by a skilled mortician. And I couldn't help but overhear some of the comments being made as people offered up, well, she looks so nice. They did such a great job with her. Whereas other people would mutter something to the effect of, well, that's just not really her. Such are, is, are the awkward expressions that people offer up in times of mourning and around a body that's no longer living. In hindsight, in various other funerals I've attended through the years, I've noticed that, or come to the realization that our view of God and our grasp of Christian truth determines how we approach the subject of death. Only months before her death, my aunt was thriving, enjoying Retirement after having taught public schools for 40 years, and truly as healthy as could be. Only two months after her diagnosis, and after a second round of chemo that sent her body descending into a collapse of her natural defenses, pneumonia set in, and in a matter of days she was gone. All of us have experienced the loss of loved ones. And it's a reminder of the consequences of our sin. And the fact that we live in a broken world, and yet man still strives in all futility to preserve and to revive our bodies, which are destined to decay and cease to breathe in this life. Ezekiel's encounter 
Encounter in the valley reminds all of us that you and I do walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But if you are truly in Christ, you fear no evil. For the spirit of life, the spirit of the Lord, enters into the valley of death to bring forth new life. Tonight, I'd like us to consider this passage and how we might gain spiritual life through God's presence, God's power, and God's passion. God's presence comes to us in two, at least two ways, bringing us comfort and also sometimes arrives contrary to our expectations. Elijah, Ezekiel reveals that the hand of the Lord was upon him and brought him into this encounter in the valley of dry bones. Now this anthropomorphism, the hand of the Lord, can be seen in at least two ways in Scripture. Usually, the hand of the Lord refers to God's judgment. Many great acts of God's judgment where he punishes Israel's enemies. The Philistines learned not to trifle with the Lord, whose hand was heavy against them in the form of plagues and rats when they had stolen the Ark of the Covenant. But here, with Ezekiel, the hand of the Lord is his comforting presence, like a father leading a child in the dark. So the Spirit of the Lord guides God's servant through the land of shadows. Now, this peculiar passage also offers up something that is contrary to our expectations. We know from Scripture that God cannot be in the presence of sin or death. The regulations of the Old Testament are very clear, restricting God's people from becoming ritually unclean. Death, or anything that approaches death, disease or blood, can make Israelites unclean. In fact, priests especially were forbidden to go near a dead body lest they become tainted and unfit for service in the tabernacle or the temple. But here the Spirit of the Lord takes God's prophet to a very unclean place, a valley of very dry and old bones. In fact, we might conclude that this is a place of desecration, For human remains left unburied were usually a sign of God's judgment. No doubt the hearers of Ezekiel's vision would be reminded by this story of Israel's wilderness wanderings. You'll recall how after coming out of the Exodus, the people of God failed to trust the Lord, to follow him into the land of Canaan, and suffered a punishment of 40 years of wanderings in the wilderness. Now, according to the census records of the Bible, there are over 600,000 men. If you do the calculation, that comes to at least 40 funerals a day. 40 people having to die every day to wipe out an entire generation to remind people of the devastating consequences of sin, bodies scattered all across the wilderness, to remind them of God's judgment in their own unbelief. 
You and I need no reminder that our bodies suffer decay. That our loved ones pass on and die. That each of us, too, will face the end of our lives. But we do need this reminder that God is with us in the valley. In this amazing encounter that Ezekiel experiences, the Spirit of the Lord is with him. His presence goes with him, even in the midst of a very unclean place, surrounded by death. Ezekiel's vision anticipates the one who would come, anointed by the Spirit of the Lord, who would live and walk amongst us, fearing no evil and tackling it head on. Friends, Jesus is God incarnate. The one who dealt the death blow to death. He became sin for us. Scripture says that in him, you and I become the very righteousness of God. As we celebrate Easter, by his own power, Jesus rose from the dead and promises to raise you and I up as well. And that is what we consider next, is the nature of God's Almighty power. Now, most people, if asked to approach a dead body or even speak at a funeral, would, if not be terrified, at least be uncomfortable. But in our text, we find the prophet Ezekiel not only called to go into the presence of the dead, but commanded to speak in a prophecy to a field of dead men's remains, a graveyard of sorts. We see in this passage how the Lord uses a feeble and weak man and his weak words to raise up men to life, preparing them for battle in the Lord's army. Now, Ezekiel's vision confirms a couple of things. First of all, that men are dead, spiritually dead, and unable to respond nor carry out the will of God. But this vision also confirms a message to the people of Israel that though they felt dead, hopeless as exiles in a foreign land, the city of Jerusalem lying in ruins, God would raise up that nation. He would restore his people with spiritual life and power to do his will once again. Now God prefaces his command to Ezekiel with a question. Son of man, can these bones live? Ezekiel is wise not to offer up his own metaphysical speculations, but to humbly respond, O Lord, you know. Such questions are too great for finite minds. All of our progress in medical science, And man's mastery over transportation, communication, and productivity leads oftentimes to a presumption about our ability to escape and cheat death. And yet, all of our attempts to preserve and prolong life continue to be humbled. Yes, we have invented all kinds of amazing life-saving and life-preserving technologies. Scuba diving gear. Space suits. Ventilators, but none of this compares to the power 
of God's word. The breath of God in scripture. The scripture that is God-breathed overwhelms and makes pitiful the wisdom and the accomplishments of man. Only the word of God brings life to the dead and wisdom to the ignorant. We see in here that power of life is not found in the body's healing capabilities, nor in man's wisdom, but rather in the word of God. Verse 4 in verse 4, Ezekiel is commanded to prophesy to these dry bones that they might hear the word of the Lord and live by the power of his word. God spoke and the universe was created. By the power of his own word, Jesus commanded a three-day-old corpse and out came Lazarus alive from the tomb. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. God reassures Isaiah in 55 verse 11 that the word would go forth from his mouth and not return void. It would accomplish the purpose for which he sent it to go. In verses 6 and following, we see the power of God's word promising to add ligament and muscle and flesh to this assembly of bones. And I believe here we have an illustration of God's saving work to restore the whole man. That in the gospel, we become whole again and fully human, made in God's likeness. Well, not only is God's power seen in his word, we find it also in human weakness. Ezekiel is obviously amazed and awestruck, witnessing this great reversal of bodily decay as a great army assembles in front of him. Notice how God uses a weak man in his own feeble words to bring about the great reformation of life even as these lifeless bodies assemble. In verse 8, the Lord humbles Ezekiel again, commanding him to order the wind, the breath, to enter into these bodies and animate them into life. It is the Lord who assembles a great host of men long dead to be alive by the Spirit. Verse 11 of our text gives us the interpretation. These very bones are God's people, Israel. God quotes their complaint when they say, Our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. The weakness of the people of God is expressed by their dread, their despair, their hopelessness. All these things that they fear while in exile, Jerusalem lies destroyed but for God's people. The very place of weakness is the place of strength. When we learn to depend upon the Lord, the Apostle Paul grasped this truth through his various trials, which he expresses so well in 2 Corinthians twelve nine. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. 
perhaps like our forefathers. We are tempted to despair. Do we give up hope when statistics tell us that the church in the West is shrinking? When Josh McDowell declares in his statistics that 75% of the church's covenant children will walk away from Christ and the church in in young adulthood. When we see around us a culture decadent and materialistic pleasure, tone deaf to the message of redemption, whose ears are so filled with a buzz of a consumer and entertainment mindset, do we despair, that our efforts are too feeble to reach the lost, those in our own household and extended family whose hearts seem hardened beyond the reach of the only message, the gospel, that can bring them true life, hope, and peace. Well, friends, we must confront our doubts with perspective. You and I are all from the land of the dead. We have been brought back to life, rescued, and called to join God in the great rescue mission. We are his agents of him who seeks and saves the lost, who finds those who have lost their way, who revives souls. You and I are like the Japanese search and rescue teams, working among the debris in the fallout of a mighty earthquake and tsunami, seeking to find survivors, finding people who still have hope as long as there is breath in their lungs. They may hear and respond to the message of the gospel. But to do so, you and I must engage at ground zero, where the risk is greatest to us. We must enter into a grim land, but not in our strength but in the strength of the one who came on that great rescue mission. You see, power was witnessed in weakness by the word which became flesh and dwelt amongst us. He considered equality with God not something to be grasped. And yet we considered him smitten by God and afflicted. Jesus came in the likeness of sinful man. In all manner of weakness and humility. He entered into a toxic valley filled with contamination to raise up men and women left for dead by the world. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And he beckons you and I to take up ours as well and to embrace his undying passion. We've considered the presence and power of God. Now we consider God's passion for his people to have life, which means to know him and that no one would perish. Verse 13 expresses this great desire of our God that we might know him. At least 20 times in the book of Ezekiel, we find this phrase, that then they will know that I am the Lord. This phrase appears at least three times in our own chapter 37. It is clear that the Lord wants to be known. 
He wants his glory to be exalted in the minds, hearts, and lives of his people. But what does it mean to know that he is the Lord? The disciples knew that he was the Lord. We're on the day of his crucifixion. Bodies of holy saints arose and appeared to a great assembly of other people. Peter knew that he was the Lord when after denying his Lord three times, was confronted, restored, and commissioned to lead the other disciples. Paul knew that he was the Lord when his eyes were opened, not only see light, but to see the scriptures being fulfilled in the person of Jesus, whom he had been persecuting. David knew that he was the Lord when all the other warriors quaked in fear. But what he saw was an uncircumcised Philistine who dared to defy the armies of the living God, testimony of the saints. And the history of God's people demonstrate that life is to be salvaged and saved, not to serve us, but that we might know the Lord. Why had God delivered Israel out of Egypt in the first place? That they and all the nations might know that he alone was God. Why did God save his people through fiery trials in the wilderness, crossing through the Jordan River and into the land of Canaan for conquest? Why did he raise up judges to save his people and Saul and David and the other kings that they might know That he alone is the Lord. You too will know that he is the Lord when the impossible takes place. That person you have prayed for for years, even decades, perhaps being tempted to despair, finally comes to faith in Christ. When that difficult relational conflict with a family member or a neighbor is finally resolved by the divine softening of a heart seemingly impenetrable when an inconsolable grief finds comfort that is not of this world. When a stubborn sin that dogs you day after day after day finally begins to loosen its grip on you when the power of a shameful addiction begins to bow to the freedom of a superior affection in Christ, yes, then you will know that he is the Lord. When your struggle to forgive somebody, to forgive a sin that seems unbearable, an unbearable offense, and yet you are overwhelmed with a new attitude of compassion, towards a fellow sinner. Yes, my friend, then you will know that he is the Lord. God's passion is not just his own people would know him, but that all the nations on earth would know that he alone is God over all the earth. Our mission's theme at the conference last month and also, as well as a memory verse in our churchwide memory verse project this year, comes from Isaiah 45, 21 and 22. And there is no God apart from me. 
a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God. And there is no other. A prominent theme in the book of Ezekiel is God's compassion on the lost. We read in Ezekiel thirty-three eleven, Say to them, As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn! Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? The desire of the Lord is that all men would turn away from sin and folly and rebellion and humbly acknowledge their weakness and need before the living God. Many of you will recall the tragedy a few weeks ago of several teen boys dying in a car crash outside Mannheim. It's a grim and tragic reminder that each one of us is but one accident, one mistake, and even one bad decision away from stepping into eternity. A brush with death sharpens our focus on the purpose of life. I had my own brush with death driving home from college after my junior year driving at least 70 miles per hour along an East Texas highway when I lost control, flipped my car in the ditch. By God's mercy, I walked away without a scratch. An experience like that reminds you of how weak, how frail is life. Oh, in hindsight, can I see that it was that following summer that I confirmed a call to the ministry that I met Stacy, my wife, that I reminded that all of my life has been planned out for me. And I'm reminded that my life is not my own. I am a dead man already. And my purpose is to know him and to make him known. Friends, may I urge you to make the Lord known to dead men and women walking about. Those of you going on summer mission trips, speak words of life to those who are spiritually dead. When you go to school tomorrow and work tomorrow, be reminded that you are talking and studying and working with people who are dead in their sins, who are facing certain judgment without the eternal security and protection of Christ's saving work. To many of those people, you will be the stench of death. But may you be, to many, the sweet-smelling aroma of Christ. You see, we have a great hope in a risen Savior. And for us, death is not the last word. Christ holds the keys to death. He has broken its spell. Death is a defeated enemy. Christ has won the victory by rising over the grave and entering into everlasting glory. And you and I, by faith in him, follow 
And ours is the inheritance to enter into Emmanuel's land. Our dwelling place is the celestial city. You and I are on a pilgrimage, on our way to a fair place where there will be no more sin, no more curse, and no more death forever. But along the way, we are gathering others into a great band, gathering others to swell our ranks. Like Ezekiel the watchman, may we be diligent to warn others, to flee the coming wrath, to direct them where they might find shelter, under the shadow of the Almighty, at the foot of the cross of our only Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you give us your spirit that we are not alone, we are not exposed as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Thank you that you have redeemed us, you have set us free, and that you call us as men and women saved by grace to bear forth the testimony of life. And I pray, Lord, that each one of us might be the sweet-smelling aroma of Christ to those who are perishing, that we might hold forth the gift of life. O Father, go with us this week. May we live by grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.